ICE Theatres, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the ICE Theatres experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. ICE Theatres, meet us at Cine Europe, booth 107. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And we have a jam-packed episode for you here, the second in our three-episode Cine Europe series sponsored by Ice Theatres and Christie. First off, we are going to have a breakdown of the box office of this past weekend and the upcoming weekend, followed by a visit from Russ Fisher, who is, uh, is now in Barcelona at Cine Europe. We'll be hearing from him about how the show is progressing, and we'll be hearing from him speaking with ICE theaters about their immersive cinema format. Then after that, we will have our feature interview with Asger Fleigerbach of Nordisk Cinemas, this year's International Exhibitor of the Year at Cine Europe. But starting off, Sean, how are you doing this weekend? Not too bad. We were just talking before uh, before we started recording about how maybe some studio executives and some studios aren't feeling so well after this past weekend that we had. We had a lot of films underperform. <laughs> yeah, this was one of those weekends where there, there there was actually good news kind of buried in the in the headlines, but the headlines themselves were, of course, not so great. So it'll be interesting to talk about a little bit. The major bit of film scheduling news over this past weekend was a whole boatload of schedule changes from Disney. You can check uh, boxofficepro.com to see a complete list of all the films that have been affected by this bit of release date changes. But the short version of it is that the MCU films and the Avatar films basically are getting pushed back. We're seeing uh, actually Deadpool 3 come forward a little bit. The MCU, we kind of have a domino effect of Avengers Secret Wars was going to come out in 26. Now it's coming out in 27. And uh, of course, the Avatar, uh, the Avatar sequels have been pushed back. I think maybe everyone was kind of expecting that they would after the 13-year delay between 1 and 2. But now we have Avatar 3 that was originally going to come out in 2020 coming out in 2025. Avatar 4 is coming out in 2029. And for Avatar 5, we'll have to wait until 2031. <laughs> if not later, if not, if there's not another release date change, which I would not be surprised by, but I, you know, I say give James Cameron all the time he needs. Definitely makes sense to let him do what he wants right now, considering what Way of Water just did a few months ago. Sean, let's let's just kind of do a, a quick rundown of this past weekend at the box office because it's it's not good. We don't want to belabor the points here, but the Flash came in uh, domestically with fifty five point one million, which was below even the lowest end. I mean, you thought like seventy to sixty million below even that, and then Elemental from Pixar. 29.5 million second place. It was looking for a while there, like it might come in behind Spider-Verse's third weekend. And it was it was probably way too close for comfort for Disney executives there. Yeah, that's very true. I think with Elemental, of course, with, with the holiday in play, maybe maybe the actuals when they come out, give it a few more to get it over the, a few more dollars to get it over that 30 million mark. But you're right, it was it was very interesting that it was going to be that close with Spider-Verse. I think Elemental grossing what it did is not as much of a surprise as maybe other things that happened, but Spider-Verse 
countering that had just such a great you know retention from last week's business despite the fact that the flash opened and went after that that male audience which of course is a lot to break down that we'll have to condense here. yeah yeah well what's what's the short version of what happened this weekend for yeah. the flash so we even kind of alluded to it i think last week we were talking about ezra miller we were talking about the state of the dc franchise Unfortunately, like when we break down these pros and cons, sometimes the pros outweigh the cons. In this case, it really seemed like not many of the pros worked. And it's, it, this was just kind of entirely lopsided to whatever could go wrong went wrong for The Flash. Honestly, like for months, we heard about all of this positive buzz for the film and critics were you know generally positive toward it. But that really kind of came to a halt over the last few weeks. Marketing really got to a point where it wasn't selling the movie to anybody but diehard fans. And that was a red flag because this was a movie that needed those general audiences. And I, I think just that general state of confusion about where the DC movies are going played into that. Obviously, the Ezra Miller factor has to be considered just a lot of things that, you know, and I think in general, people are more more selective about what comic book movies are going to spend their money on because it's not a novelty anymore. We've already had three big ones this summer, two of which are doing very well and have had strong word of mouth. So that really just worked against the flash despite everything else. It seemed like it had in its favor. I really think for years, this looked like a hundred million dollar potential opener, even in long range forecasting. That's, that's where we started out at it. And it was tracking that way for a while until, like I said, everything just hit a wall about three or four weeks ago. This the, one of the statistic that really jumps out at me here for the opening weekend domestically, 70% of the audience was over 25. Like this could not get younger audiences in. Yeah, and that was honestly, probably chalk that up to Michael Keaton. I think that was where the bulk of the interest in this movie ended up being for older Batman and DC fans, you know, similar to maybe how people showed up for Han Solo for Star Wars or, or you know, you can think of plenty of examples now and maybe Hugh Jackman and X-Men, but all of those other franchises had so many other attractive options for young audiences. This This really just didn't appeal to many people outside of that demographic. So you mentioned, you know, people can be much more uh, selective nowadays, especially when it comes to superhero movies, because there are so many of them. We have two more this year for the DCEU Extended Universe. Uh, we have Blue Beetle at the end of the summer, which introduces a superhero who's uh, never been seen on the big screen before. And then in the latter part of the year, I believe it's November, we have the Aquaman sequel, The Lost Kingdom. What are you thinking? Is there going to be an impact? on this. Yeah. You know, I think at the end of the day, I feel like each movie has to be taken on its own merits. There may be Aquaman 2 has a little bit of a cushion because people still love Jason Momoa in that role. That being said, it, it will have been five years since that first movie, similar to how it was five years, uh, well, four years between Shazam movies and five or six years since Justice League to The Flash that's a big gap. And, you know, we've seen now that these DC films don't really have any traction in terms of the Snyderverse and the DCEU that's coming to an end. The Flash essentially is meant to be the stopping point, yet we're still going to have Aquaman. So that's a little bit of a confusing aspect. I think Blue Beetle is really interesting because James Gunn is, has publicly come out and said now on Twitter that that is the first character in the DCU that he is overseeing. Okay. So. Blue Beetle is in limbo here in between the Flash and Aquaman in a couple of years before Gunn really gets going with Superman. So it's such a confusing would, like, it really is. setup. And moving on here, because we do have a lot to touch on in this episode, 
Elemental, the second worst Pixar opening. Pixar really needed a, a good weekend. They needed to bounce back. They did not get it. No. And, you know, th- I would say this one was probably a little bit less surprising than The Flash, but that doesn't necessarily make it great news just because it was kind of expected to be an underperformer by Pixar levels. And, you know, we really kind of talked about this last week, too. I think there's a changing of the guard in terms of current generation of kids are are more familiar with Illumination and now Sony Animation through Spider-Man. DreamWorks is having a little bit of a renaissance with Puss in Boots. Pixar is not going anywhere, but I I do think this is is just one of the consequences of not just the streaming strategy during the pandemic, but in general, Pixar relied on franchises throughout the last decade for the most part with only a few original films here and there. So it's going to be about you know new current leadership getting back to the fundamentals of what made Pixar a big event draw. So and the good thing is this seems to have relatively positive reviews and reception, and it doesn't have a lot of competition for the rest of the summer. So maybe Elemental can grow legs. And uh, the third wide release we had over this last weekend, though it only came out in about 1,800 theaters, was from Lionsgate horror comedy The Blackening. Didn't do well. Six million, sixth place. Given that, you know, I'm looking at The Blackening's performance, R-rated horror comedy, six million, didn't do well. Next weekend, we have No Hard Feelings coming out, an R-rated comedy with Jennifer Lawrence. Whether R-rated comedies are going to come back has been a big question. A lot of the studios at, at CinemaCon this year in their presentations were really hammering home the point. Like, no, we have an R-rated comedy. Yeah. You know, I think maybe I'm, I'm optimistic. I do think they can come back and they will come back. But it comes down to being able to really offer something that people don't feel like they can go and watch on streaming right now. And and that's really one of the hardest things to do with comedy because there are just so many films like that. But on the flip side, I just, I think maybe once it happens that we'll get that momentum back because once people remember what it's like to see a comedy in a communal setting like that on a consistent basis, that's what always made those comedies so successful. That just hasn't really had a chance to happen. Like we saw the lost city do that last year, but it was, PG-13, of course. I think No Hard Feelings is an, an interesting position. It's it's really the only major release before Fourth of July weekend in Indiana Jones. Jennifer Lawrence, you know, had this movie come out five or six years ago, I, I think maybe would have had a little more ceiling to it. Now it's, it's a little bit of a question of, did her break from acting maybe diminish some of her box office draw on opening weekend? That might be one thing to look at right now. There's pretty much no hard feelings uh, at the box office uh, next weekend, and, and that's about it. So if it starts getting those good reviews and if it starts getting that positive word of mouth, you know, it could benefit from <laughs> there not being much else that people want to see. That's very true. And, and even just looking at where I think overall the market right now is, you know, this last weekend saw roughly $164 million from all of the movies. That actually beat Father's Day weekend in 2019 by, I want to say, close to $30 million. So that's the good news. I think we kind of hinted at at the start of the episode, because despite the Flash and Elemental doing what they did, everything else is around it is still contributing to what the result is. A lot of people are going to movies right now. So is there space in the market for no hard feelings? I think hopefully you know, there's certainly not any other movie out, out there like that right now. It's also possible that these holdovers continue to carry the load until maybe Indiana Jones benefits from the Flash losing its audience and Transformers and Spider-Man being in their late weeks by that point. The failures of the Flash and Elemental to live up to expectations certainly don't mean anything, you know, general or wide-ranging about the health of the movie theater 
industry. Maybe something Absolutely. about the health of the superhero movie genre. And I'm, I'm, I'm seeing people <laughs> kind of chatter about like, is the bubble about to burst there? Is there superhero fatigue? That's a separate thing. And we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on that one over the next few months as more of them keep coming out. Yeah, absolutely. And we won't really have until Blue Beetle, you know, next July will be kind of packed with some of those movies that everybody's been talking about saying they want to see more of Mission Impossible and Oppenheimer, Barbie. So there will be a break from the superheroes for a little while. And that's really going to be the chance for those types of films to shine. All right. And before I let you go, Sean, back in, I believe it was early May, your opening weekend range for No Hard Feelings was around 13 to 20, 22 million. You still feeling good about that? Lowered the ceiling on that a little bit. I think $20 million would be asking a lot at this point. I don't think marketing has is, is really kicked up into high gear the way usually we would want to see for a comedy. Although that's kind of hard to tell because there aren't many samples like that during the post-pandemic. 10 plus million right now feels like a, a more cautious, kind of safe range. Everything's going to come down to reception and reviews. Comedies kind of live and die on that, especially in this day and age when people can expect to see it on streaming fairly quickly if it's not a hit at the box office. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, Christy, and then we'll be back with Russ Fisher to give us a boots on the ground perspective as to how this year's City Europe in Barcelona is developing. Be right back. What does it take to create the technology behind cinema magic? If you look at Cannes, BFI, other shows that are considered the best of the best, you'll find Christie in every projection booth. The reason for that is the quality and passion they put into their products. This is cinema equipment built by cinema enthusiasts. It's technology that loves cinema. If you want to know more about how they're advancing the future of cinema or modernizing traditional xenon systems, check them out at Cine Europe MR134 or online at Christie digital.com forward slash cinema. Okay, and now we are back with Russ Fisher dialing in from Barcelona, Cine Europe. Russ, it's, it's your first Cine Europe, right? How are you holding up? It is. I'm great. Thank you. A little bit of drama getting here. Uh, but once I got here and was on the ground, which was Monday morning, about 9.30, came straight to the convention center, got into it immediately. So uh, we're speaking shortly after uh, Unique put out their annual report, kind of breaking down the state of movie going across the European territories that they represent. Obviously, a theme through that report, and I imagine through Cine Europe, is the recovery of those European territories after uh, the last few years that we've had. What are the conversations that are happening around that subject at Cine Europe? Because, you know, we say European recovery. That's a very, very big category. It's a huge category. And it's, you know, it, it is, it gets more granular as you go territory by territory. There are certainly some interesting wins in the sense that, you know, places like Turkey, Chechnya, France, we're seeing local cinema be particularly competitive with Hollywood product. Some of that is not exactly new, but the numbers and the balance is different now than it was pre-pandemic. And so that is really, that, that kind of feeds into the overall notion, which is that as we go forward, especially as audiences were lost during the pandemic, that exhibitors and studios alike need to kind of recourt and recapture specific segments of the audience, specific demographics. And one of the most effective ways so far is with 
local cinema, local output. And so it's nice to see that that's working, at least in some territories, really well. Yeah, looking at the uh, the report that Unique put out today, like the top two films in Turkey were both local films. I know Turkey has long had like a vibrant local film you know, ecosystem, that's, that's nothing new, but it's definitely neat to see that some of those, uh, those lessons of the last few years, really reaching out to diverse audiences and making sure you have supply to meet the demand is still being, you know, it's really being taken in and acted upon. Yeah, no question. And I think there's a flip side too. And the flip side is that there is an awareness that there are demographics that are not being reached. And, you know, or like occasionally, I know during Universal's presentation today, they highlighted the European success of Ticket to Paradise, especially as it drew in an older demographic that has been slower to come back to the movies. There's been a little bit of discussion here and there of things that play well on TikTok, which is not so much like, you know, we're not making movies for TikTok, but there is the awareness that there's a huge demographic that gets a lot of their entertainment for free, primarily from TikTok or uh, from apps and outlets like that. So how do we get those people, that demographic, either to come back to the movies or maybe in some circumstances to really be coming to the movies for the first time? Now, at CinemaCon, one of the main takeaways that I had is that after uh, a, f- a few years of, let's say, tense relationships between studios <laughs> and exhibitors, I've got the sense that exhibitors were finally feeling like, okay, the studios have come around. We've, we've had these conversations on Windows. We've had these conversations on the actual exclusivity. Everybody's on the same page now that we need a theatrical exclusive window. So now, okay, we're kind of we're kind of back on the same side a little bit more. There was there was not quite the, the tension that there had been in the other post-pandemic CinemaCons. I know in 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 Europe it's it's going to be complicated because the studios may have like different different deals and different setups and different relationships from country to country. On a macro level, can you give us a sense of how that relationship kind of feels to you this year? I get the sense that tension persists. It's definitely still there a little bit. I think everybody wants to be playing the same game, and I think everybody wants to believe that both sides of that equation can work together going forward. But you can definitely sense that everybody's still a little suspicious, mostly on the exhibitor side. You know, I think that some of that comes to the demographic question. Like exhibitors, I think, are looking for both product and marketing support that is going to help pull a wider array of audiences into theaters. But then I think also like during the Universal presentation today, the market exec that led the announcement of Trolls Band Together simply said something along the lines of, did not mention it by name even, but he was like, after an unusual detour, Trolls is back on the big screen. And it's like, okay, that's a a cheeky way to kind of sidestep a huge conversation that clearly doesn't have a point in this presentation or doesn't have a place in this presentation, but is something that nobody has forgotten. You know, yeah, like yeah, they so were the first studio. There. They were like really out the gate that really set that precedent with Trolls World Tour. That, that Trolls World Tour day and date change, you know, that was a big, big deal. That was really one of the big tipping points. So, yeah. And so to address it in that way was a little bit like, I don't know, maybe there would have been a better way to do that. Clearly, they don't want to devote a bunch of time to it in that presentation. But I took notice. I would imagine a lot of other people took notice as well. The other thing that has 
not been very much a part of the conversation, in part because we're in Europe rather than the United States, is the writer's strike and the threat of potential strikes by other guilds. But certainly, I think there is an awareness that those strikes represent a potential disruption of a supply pipeline, you know, to boil it down to the most simple terms. And again, you know, the studios are not going to talk about that because of the side of the coin that they're on in that relationship. And exhibitors don't seem to be openly, certainly not in the, the public forums, aren't really pressing that issue. I'm hoping as the week goes on, I might be able to talk to some more people to really see what their concerns are. But I don't think I'm imagining to say that that is in the air here and that there's, you know, caution. Russ, will be catching back up with you uh, after the show, after you're back here in the States to kind of go over the second half of, of Cine Europe and your impressions kind of overall macro level from, from the whole, whole show. Before we let you go to, I don't know, hit the trade show floor, uh, go party on in Barcelona. <laughs> Is there anything else <laughs> that you'd like to bring up? Any, uh, any major impressions from your first couple of days? Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, it's almost like the 1950s all over again, where movies are facing a renewed battle with television. I think the pandemic certainly brought home the fact that people have a lot of entertainment options at home, more than they know what to do with in a lot of ways. And here you're seeing a recognition that some of those demographics and audiences that haven't come back to the theater yet, and maybe even some of those who have, but might, you know, they, we might like to see in greater numbers, that there's competition from television at home. And so there's a lot of emphasis on everything from, you know, premium large format to seating in the way that it's like, what can be done to offer an experience in a theater that people simply cannot have at home? And I think that there, you know, that contributes to a lot of different things we're seeing in the industry, but certainly that's one of the big levels of awareness that's going on here is just, you know, we need to get people off the couch, but people like being on the couch. So how do we do that? And it's a big topic. Thanks so much for those insights, Russ. You will be back on the podcast next week to go over Cine Europe as a whole. But right now, let's take a quick break, and then we will cut to your interview with one of the sponsors of the Cine Europe series of the Box Office Podcast, Ice Theaters. Hello, Russ Fisher here at Center Europe 2023 with Guillaume Tomine de Masur, the Managing Director of Ice Theatres. Guillaume, thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. How has the show been so far for you? It's great. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, every time and every year I say that, but <laughs> this Cine Europe is even better than the past one. Of course, the industry recovery is there. We all see that. And I'm very, very proud and thrilled because yesterday we did the keynote before Sony Pictures. And this is when I announced the opening of three new territories. But also today, first day of the trade show, we already have like 15 new projects that we need to work. 15 projects in a few hours that's never seen before. So it feels like we finally reached a, a moment where actually we're legitimate enough and people are asking about us, which is great. Congratulations. Thank you. I was going to ask if you've been meeting with exhibitor partners or with studio partners, new partners. All of them. And all of them. And actually, we, uh, as you can see, our meeting are back to back. And we try to address as many partners as we can. But of course, we are meeting all the studios uh, individually and we're meeting as much exhibitors that we can, taking into account that we are a really big team right now on the show. So we have quite a lot of people. And so far, we can address everyone. So, terrific. Many of our listeners are familiar with ICE. 
Some are not. For those who are not, can you describe ice theaters? Sure. Ice theater, it's like, you know, we're French, right? And uh, we like cooking in France. So ice theater, it's exactly when you do a, a nice recipe, you take the best ingredients. So what we did is we took the best ingredients in image with 4K laser projector, the best ingredients for sound with immersive sound from Dolby Atmos. We want the best seats, back recliner or full recliner. On top of that, we add LED panels on the side to replicate the peripheral vision. And so when we do a movie in ice, the content on the side walls is from start to finish. So it literally immerses the audience more deeper into the content. So a scary scene will be much scarier in ice immersive. A laughing scene will make you laugh out loud. A sad scene will make you cry harder. And that's why we have so many content. In 2023 alone, so this year alone, we're releasing more than 40 titles in Ice Immersive. So if you do an average, it's one movie every nine days, which is quite impressive. And the reason behind that impressive number of content is because we do not distract the audience from the main frame. When you look on the side, it's only blurry image, movement, colors, but it only makes sense when you look on the center screen. And this is where all of a sudden, the center screen aligned with the LED panels on the side, and it's very flashy enough for the young audience to be attracted to this format. And it's classy enough to retain your senior audience. So along those lines, for an ICE auditorium, you have extra panels. Can you discuss how you work with exhibitors? Sure. It's very easy. Actually, when we have a partner that is interested in our solution, we ask of them the blueprints in AutoCAD files. From there, we do the integration, and it's the full integration, so electricity, carpentry, design, general design. And at this moment, we schedule the retro planning, and we usually tend to open with a, a nice premiere opening with a movie. So for instance, we're going to open in Estonia with Apollo Kino with uh, Dune on November 3rd. We're going to open in South America with Aquaman on December 15th. So we always try to find a nice title to kick off the ice theater format in the country. Are there specific technical requirements like auditorium size, capacity, yes. anything else? Yes. So, I mean, most of the auditoriums are convertible to ice theater, but we tend to do a specific size, which would be between 100 and 250 seats. And the shape of the auditorium also matters. We'd rather have a long auditorium than an extra wide auditorium to keep the panels and the immersive effect close to the audience. Now, you have a significant global footprint right now. Can you describe it briefly? Yeah. So <laughs> I did that joke yesterday at the keynote, <laughs> but we address most of the time zone at the moment, hence the dark circles under my eyes. But uh, so we're present in the United States, Colombia, Ecuador. We're present in France, Spain, soon Italy and Germany and Estonia. We opened recently in India. We're going to open before the end of December in Thailand with Major Cineplex, the leading exhibitor in Thailand. And we also have a, a few other deals to be announced very shortly. Wonderful. Nice. So total footprint right now is uh, 80 screens worldwide. Wonderful. Now, along those lines, we've seen a lot of talk already in the first couple of days of the show about global box office recovery in 2023. The numbers are moving in the direction people would like to see. That being the case, are there titles that have performed unusually well for ICE? Of course. I mean, when you look at Top Gun, it was unexpected to reach those numbers. Avatar was expected, but not that much. And then you have some surprise, like uh, Super Mario, which in our format is absolutely incredible, or Spider-Man as well. 
because you have a lot of colors, a lot of movements. The contrast is pretty intense. And of course, when you have those results combined with our technology, then your box office numbers raised. Just to give you a blunt number, on Avatar, more than 52% of our ticket sales were made in ice theater. So in France, we have 700 screens, 43 ice theater. 52% of our ticket sales were made into 43 screens versus 700. So it just to tell you how attractive it is to the audience to pay a pretty nice extra fee to enjoy an immersive experience. And those ticketing numbers must play into the global expansion that of you're course. talking about. Of course. Yeah. Now, you have content partnerships with Hollywood studios, sure. with local producers, companies in India. Are there titles you are particularly looking forward to seeing in an ice theater over the next year or two? Any title, if, if you ask the business guy, any title which makes sense in ice is a title with movement, action, colors. So of course, Bollywood titles makes perfect sense. Animated movie makes perfect sense. Action movies like Mission Impossible is highly expected and anticipated. Barbie, Barbie is expected as well because it's pink, you know, yeah. and, and that, that is flashy. But if, if you ask me, me personally, as a movie buff that I am, of course, nobody works in this industry if you don't like movies, but me, I can't wait to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Very much the same for myself. Absolutely. <laughs> now, premium large formats evolve with technology. What can we expect to see from ICE going forward into the next five years? Well, you know, cinema technology is something that needs to evolve, and it's evolving, but we can, it does not evolve as fast as the, the TV business or, or something. It's something, when you make an investment to do a nice theater, it's for the long term, so we cannot refresh as quickly everything. But one glimpse I can give you first is we're going to launch a contest of short content, specially designed for ice theater. So for each movie in ice theater, you will have a, a dedicated piece of content of one minute, specially designed for it to show the audience of the full potential of our technology. But also, we will have some options that we can add to the experience, but I cannot communicate on it now. It will be revealed in a few months by now because we're finalizing the terms, but I can't wait. You'll be the first to know as soon as we are. All right. As soon as the ink is dry. <laughs> One question I didn't ask earlier, if you could talk about it all, do you produce the screen content for the sides? Is that produced in-house by us? Correct, correct. So we have in, in France, we have three bunkers facility. We like to call it bunker because it's military, military secured. Of course, when you receive the content three weeks ahead, the worldwide release, you need to make sure that nobody's going to steal that piece of content from you. So we are TPN approved, which is the highest security standard. And from there, we have a team of graphic designer who are you know, doing all the design and we have a bank of 192 effects that we can choose from for each scene, depending if we're talking about a dialogue, an action scene, a landscape, face-to-face -face talk. So this is where we have a very manual and dedicated team that is doing all the effects, second frame per frame. And three weeks is not a lot of turnaround time. It's not a lot. And, and when you look at it, I mean, 40 titles in a year. So I, now I, I start to receive some complaint from the team because they would like to see at some point daylight. <laughs> so I'll need to address that point too. You can get there with the expansion. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right, Guillaume, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Wonderful. Have a great rest of the show. Thank you. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. And 
moving on from my colleague Russ Fisher and his interview on immersive cinema format ICE theaters, we move to the exhibitor side of the conversation, speaking with Asger Fleigerbeck Thompson of Nordisk Film Cinemas, receiving the International Exhibitor of the Year Award this year at Cine Europe. Mr. Beck Thompson, thanks so much for speaking with us. I know that when you talk about uh, the recovery of the European sector, it's not one size fits all. For Nordic cinemas and, and the territories in which you operate, what has the recovery from the pandemic been like? Well, I, actually, we are in three territories, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. And the pandemic was actually a kind of a learning lab it was a learning lab for us, but it was also a learning lab for society. And the interesting thing in the Scandinavian territory was that for three countries being as similar as we are here in Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, it was handled the pandemic in three different ways. And in Denmark, it was actually either you're open or you're completely closed. In Sweden, it actually never closed down, but sometimes the restrictions limited capacity to maybe like something like 20%. And Norway was in between. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, especially in couldn't we keep open and could we just keep a little open instead of being completely closed? But it was actually, think, I think that you have to judge what our politicians decided on what happened after COVID. How fast did you recoup? And honestly, I would say that handling the pandemic as a whole for the society was also the same thing for the cinemas. Of course, I mean, Denmark recouped very fast. It came from the confidence. The confidence was was higher already going through pandemic because either it was closed and then regarded as it's, when it's closed, you can't go. And when it was open, it was regarded as safe. So when we opened after the pandemic, the confidence quickly rose and we actually gained traction very fast. Norway at the slow one. Actually, Sweden has been way slower than both Norway and Denmark in recovering after COVID. And even though we could say that under COVID, we would like to have been open, then all of us were most focused on what came after COVID and how fast our market recouped. The other thing was also an internal sorry, learning lab for, for our company because we had to uh, learn some new tricks of the trade. And we also found new ways of doing things that actually benefits us today. So actually, we have a much, much healthier business, I would say, after COVID. You have the government restrictions and you have the numbers surrounding the pandemic and everything. But another huge factor in the recovery process has just been film availability or unfortunately, sometimes the lack thereof. What is that? Uh, what has that been like? For I mean, I, I'm not sure. Was there more of a reliance on local titles? Do people watch the same local titles in all three of your markets, or is it very separate? No, local titles are a big thing in Scandinavia. We are usually between 20 and 30 percent in market share for our local titles for each of the countries. But here again, how you manage COVID actually played in because if you are a distributor. Would you like to release your movie when capacity is only 50%, even though the cinemas are open, but capacity is limited to 50 or lower? It was actually also here easier for the distributors in Denmark because when the cinemas were open, they were like nearly com completely without restrictions. Of course, you would have to be wear a, a mask and everything, but 
still it was open. And that meant that the distributors could easily release their movies. It's another thing if you have like a situation where you're maybe open, but you're restricted to down to 20% of your capacity, which distributor would like to release the movie in that territory. And that was actually the main problem was the availability of movies. The interesting thing is that before we very much discussed this industry as completely content-driven, what you learn when you only have 20% of the titles and you find out you have 60% of the admissions is that we are also very much demand-driven, meaning that people want to go out. If they want to go out, they want to have a cultural experience. If they have to choose between the cultural experiences, well, movie cinema is very available. It has a lot of times. It's nearly everywhere and every, even in small towns, it's available. So I would say that, that we learned a lot for this learning lab, as I call COVID. And one was that we are probably just as much demand driven as we're content driven. And that is if you have like covered, well covered with titles, all genres and all target groups, you are actually doing quite well, even with, with much fewer titles than you used to. Mm-hmm. How is that? Has that changed at all uh, the way you approach programming, marketing, just general operations? The fact that you now have this kind of different mindset of what of the supply versus demand in the industry. Yes, it has a little in the way that we are very aware that we need to have kind of filled out all the boxes for all the genres and all the target groups. For example, when we go into high seasons like vacation periods. We were aware of that before, but there wasn't that limited a supply before. Actually, there was more movies that we could really give attention to before COVID. I mean, the the number of titles had gradually increased up until COVID happened. So I would say we've been more aware that we have to cover the genres and the target groups in order actually to harvest the demand that is out there. The larger movies, they will, of course, if you have a, a larger number of titles, you can, of course, offer each target group or each genre several titles. And that will, of course, increase the number of admissions you can have. We've been seeing, you know, as part of that whole process of people want to go out, they want to do something, they want to be entertained outside of their home, getting their choice to be cinemas a lot of theaters have really noticed that like premium formats are really over-indexing compared to pre-pandemic. What are the premium formats that audiences and your markets are really interested in? What's your footprint? Yeah. You tell me a bit about that. I mean, we see the same thing. The larger formats, they're popular, despite that we take a premium price. It's like it's a little bit interesting, but the premium price uh, does not stop anyone. If there's a limited supply and one of the movies are in a premium format, it actually sells out very fast. It's the same that in the screens where we still have classic seats and we maybe have one row of recliners, the recliners, they always go first. We operate 40X. We have a single THX in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark. And then we have our own large premium format called Supreme. And they're usually in our largest uh, screens in the multiplexes, and they actually do very well. The premium price does not scare away any moviegoers. Actually, they go first. 
What are your concessions offerings like? Attitudes uh, towards concessions can vary so widely between markets. Like in North America, dine-in theaters have become very popular. In France, not so much. What's the state of concessions in Scandinavia? I would say with our, our infancy here, we are still in, in the test phase of finding out what flavors the Scandinavian audience like. And I would say pretty much everybody is. There's no one who has fielded a real, real kitchen with a lot of hot food and so. We're still in our infancy in that. We are trying to find out. But of course, we are looking to, for the experiences in the United States where you are definitely ahead of us. And also uh, from where we, what we can gain of experiences from United Kingdom that is also definitely ahead of us. It is the interesting thing is that, I mean, the first recliner were introduced in Denmark in something like 2015. The audience have taken that to them very fast. And the funny thing is that food has done exactly the same. We are a little behind in terms of those offerings, recliners and food. But I, I would say there are no surprises in Scandinavia and that. What seems to work in the United States probably would also work in Scandinavia. That is what, what we have experienced now. We have a number of cinemas, or I would say our portfolio of cinemas, we have 48. None of them were fitted out with kitchen. And now we have like three of them fitted out with kitchens. But I mean, we're still in the infancy and the, the learning phase about what is the best offerings we can have, where's the price points, how will the audience use these in, in a Scandinavian setting. What's your recliner rollout been? If it's been just under 10 years since you started, can you give me like a rough estimate of the percentage of, of seats that are recliners now for you? I think we're around uh, 30 to 40 in Denmark. We are only around, I think, 10% in Norway. And uh, the two multiplexes we have in Sweden, they are full recliners, both of them. Yeah, it's, I mean, just speaking as a moviegoer, once you sat in a, the recliner, the nice seat, it's tough to go back. But it's also a hassle if you have like a capacity, we have 260 screens, then the limits on financials and so on and time actually is actually the biggest limitations because recliners is a super good investment for cinemas also in Scandinavia. You just spoke a few seconds back about looking at, you know, what other global cinemas are doing in terms of concessions and F&B and just other non-cinema things to draw audiences in. I mean, you're owned by a company that has fingers in video games and all sorts of different types of media and magazines yeah. and books and, and you yourself. I mean, Nordisk, Nordisk itself is involved in digital signage and distribution and, and so much, you know, a wide variety of stuff. Does that have any impact on operations or, or does it provide any benefit or any insight being part of a larger company that is, you know, working in different fields. Is there, are there, is there information or are there things that you're able to pull from there? From time to time, yes. Uh, but I would say that the group, Egmont, I mean, the, it's a portfolio of, of activities. And Egmont, we are a foundation that actually, I would all say that we have a purpose in the foundation and that is supporting children and young people that comes from families, backgrounds with few resources. That common background is very important, actually, for all of us. So we have like a common baseline. Why are we doing this? And we're doing it to want to, of course, invest in the companies we already have, the activities we already have, and to give money for those activities supporting children, young persons that come from families with limited resources. But in terms of the business side, yes, we work together 
when there is a sound and good reason for it. And even in Nordic film, where we have production, film distribution, and cinema, we actually operate each leg as an individual. And that is because our production was limited to only produce what I would like to have in my cinemas. They would probably miss out on some talent, and they would probably miss out on opportunities that other production companies would pick up. So our production company must have freedom to compete freely with all other production companies, not being limited by we also have a, a distribution and a production, or sorry, a cinema. And especially for me, of course, if I was to put all our movies either produced by us or distributed by us in screen one, I would probably miss out on a couple of very important movies from the larger studios. So we are very aware that each of the companies has its own kind of place in the industry. So we only have discussions about general notes. We compare notes, I would say, on the general things in the industry. Given just how long Nordisk has been in this industry, is there any room for growth in the Scandinavian markets? Or is your focus more on elevating the theaters you already have by investing in things like recliners and premium formats? The three markets in Scandinavia, they are very mature. I mean, we've been in business for over 100 years. I mean, it's not like, you know, there are green fields all around us. It's like pretty much like the end of a game of a Monopoly game. There's a house everywhere, kind of. And uh, it's a limited uh, opportunity there is for growth in the markets. But there are possibilities for growth. And the good thing is that we and the competition are still investing. If we're going to develop this industry, we are going to keep on investing. And, and we definitely are going to keep on investing. We are also switching here and there. We're switching, you know, we have one old or Actually, we are switching one here in October, and, and that is not really, it's, it's like 15-year-old cinema. We are switching to a new one. But that will then renew the capacity. It will be a, a, a full recline, of course, we open up, and it will maybe have a 40X as well. We haven't decided, decided that. So the whole thing here is that the industry needs to keep on investing because the market in Scandinavia also a little bit different in how much they have been invested in them. I would say the competition is a, is a bit more tough in Denmark. The capacity has been growing more than admissions also before COVID. And that means it, it's, a, it's a tough competition. And uh, finally, I want to ask you, I know this is too big of a topic just for now, but could you give me like maybe a, just a, a top level, very broad sense of what sustainability efforts look like at Nordics? I would actually first say that the whole uh, sustainability uh, is a big thing in Egmont our parent group. And so it is also with us. The interesting thing is actually that when we ask our guests to rate different kind of things in our cinemas, how important they are for them. For example, recliners, food and beverage, and so on and everything. And also that we have low footprint, then actually I must say it's in the lower quarter. It ends up in the lower quarter. So it's not directly important when you ask the guests about it and you ask them to rank between the different kind of attributes this cinema has. Where it's very important is our staff. We do biannually, we do the staff survey where, first of all, our staff or colleagues, they rate us leaders. And they actually also supply a lot of comments to each rating. And that is very helpful. From that, we can see that for our own colleagues, 
sustainability is very important. So I would actually say we've been we've been interested in this for quite a long time. We have gone from what I would call a phase one to a phase two. In phase one, we focused very much on doing all the things that would have an, what, what we saw would have an impact. And that means, of course, LED, it means automation of uh, ventilation, heating systems. It means we are remotely controlling all our boots, meaning that from three operation centers, we control 260-some screens, which means that there are no people in the boots. That's very efficient. They also control heating and ventilation remotely. So they oversee that we actually, that the sites are trimmed and the automation is working correctly and so on. So all these basic things, that's phase one. Phase two we have entered in now is actually mapping completely what our footprint is. And we use the uh, greenhouse gas protocol like most Fortune 500 companies. And uh, that is a time-consuming process. It's been organized so the, the measuring or the calculation of what our carbon footprint is is lying with the accounting department. But all the activities that then goes in improving that footprint is distributed around all the, the countries and all the functional areas. It's also that way that uh, it's mandatory for the management in Nord Stream Cinemas, uh, for the management group and the level under them, that everybody uh, that has bonus has actually a mandatory target for carbon footprint. So, so the managers, I myself and those working with me, they have a uh, target, which I think accounts for around 10% of the bonus. They also have, of course, like probably everybody has, mandatory a score for when they, our employees they make the biannual survey about how well they feel in the company and how well they score us as a management. So that goes also, I think, for 10% or something like that. I would say one last comment on this. What we actually learned from the mapping and the finding out what our footprint is, is that when you do the greenhouse gas protocol, it's divided into scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one is what you, in office, consume, sorry, of energy, what you travel in cars, what you fly in planes. Scope two is energy, typically mostly energy you consume, electricity in the cinemas. And scope three is what comes from your value chain, for example, mainly for concessions, but also for refurbishing cinemas. And what we actually found was that we've been focused on scope two and actually improved that. But where we ended was actually realizing that scope tree, the supply chain, has a larger, much, much larger footprint. And I actually just had to, it's like six times bigger. So actually what, what we found was that today when they, with the footprint we have from electricity and power, utilities in all our cinemas, well, what comes from the supply chain has a six times bigger footprint. And that is an interesting conclusion for us. And that is where we're going to focus with our suppliers to improve that for now on. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of the Box Office Podcast, the second in our 2023 Cine Europe series, made possible by our sponsors Ice Theater and Christie. Thank you once again to Ice Theaters and Christie for making this series happen, as well to the Box Office Podcast team, that being Sean Robbins, Russ Fisher, and Chad Kennerk, as well as the team at Record Edit Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company in collaboration with Box Office Pro. Do 
episodes are out every Thursday. Please tune in next week for the third and final episode in our 2023 Cine Europe series. Thank you. Have a great day.